Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. The samurai scowls. His eyes narrow. He slowly draws his katana, the sacred weapon of Japan's elite warrior caste. Forged through a delicate and complicated process of folding a specialized steel to create a keen, honed edge capable of slicing through bone, flesh, and armor. The longsword is the most treasured possession of Japan's elite. In the hands of a master, few things on earth are deadlier. Denzichiro Yoshioka is such a master. His family has taught the combat arts to samurai for generations, including the mighty Ashikaga shoguns themselves. His style is flawless, his movements honed from decades of training, his reputation that of one of Japan's most elite swordsmen. Across from him in the dueling circle is a wandering ronin, a lordless swordsman, a rogue drifting across the land, brazenly challenging the leaders of Japan's most illustrious fighting schools to single combat. The ronin's face is scarred, his beard scraggly, his eyes wild, his hair loosely tied up in a top knot above his head. He looks more animal than man. In his hand, the ronin carries not a katana, but a wooden sword, a practice weapon used to train children. Who would have had the audacity to bring that here to a duel to the death? Denzichiro can barely contain his rage. This insult cannot be forgiven. His opponent, the ronin Miyamoto Musashi, smiles slightly. He nods to begin the combat and violently hurls himself into the fray. And welcome back to Badass of the Week. My name is Ben Thompson, and I am here as always with my co-host, Dr. Pat Larish. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Ben? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We are doing some samurai stuff today, some some katana stuff. So have you been um, brushing up on your Bushido? Not really. I've started to look into it. It's kind of complex. I think it takes a lifetime to master. It's <laughs> a great answer, yeah. As as all great warrior ways. Uh, you... <laughs> <laughs> so, Pat, what do you think of when we think about samurai? We haven't done a samurai before on the show. No, we haven't. Yeah. So, obviously, I think of Japan, which is where the samurai are from. And I think of these... Um, Japanese woodcuts of guys in maybe kind of elaborate armor with these beautiful, elegantly curved swords. And I think of Kurosawa movies. <laughs> Tom Cruise, Last Samurai, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> maybe Tom Cruise, Last Samurai. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're joking here a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. So, samurai, uh, we're going to get into it, but samurai are basically the knights of, of feudal Japan. And it's kind of interesting because they operate several hundred years after the knights operated in Europe. But they are they're nobles who um, have very elaborate armor, as you said, weapons, weapons training, um, and they're they're trained more or less along the ways that uh, that knights in Europe would have been trained. Right? You are kind of born into this class. You learn to fight from a very young age. You learn all of the traditionally manly skills, like calligraphy and uh, mm-hmm. writing poetry and yeah, decapitating yeah. people. Yeah. That is yeah. kind of the world that Maimoto Musashi is is born into. 
but he is going to be a lot different from the traditional samurai that you would see in a Kurosawa movie. He's going to be his own guy, and he's going to do some pretty cool stuff, and he's going to actually end up creating an entirely new archetype, that kind of mm-hmm. Toshiro Mifune, like, wandering dude with no armor and a sword who goes into a town and gets into trouble and ends up walking out of there with a bunch of dead bodies in his wake. Yeah. We're going to talk more about him after this. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, we are talking about probably my favorite, and um, we'll get into it later. Probably samurai isn't the right term for him, but he is operating in the samurai time period. Uh, one of my favorite warriors uh, from Japanese history. We're going to talk about Miyamoto Musashi. He is a very famous uh, wandering swordsman from the Edo period of Japanese history, and he killed his first man at age 13, and by the time he was 30, he had won over 60 life-or-death duels, taught hundreds of students. He fought in somewhere around six big you know, battles that defined the history of Japan. And then when he got bored of that, he climbed a mountain, lived in a cave, and wrote a book about swordsmanship and philosophy. Yeah, so as badasses go, he makes me think a little bit of Hercules, someone who's known for his brawn, but also was able to think his way through situations too. And especially Bruce Lee, because Bruce Lee had a whole philosophy behind what he was doing. So you've got brains along with our brawn. We've got a little bit of violence, actually a lot of violence and a certain amount of Zen broadly defined. He developed a philosophy. Yeah. And, um, you know, very, very deep, very kind of Zen Buddhist philosophy uh, that he had. And, and we'll get into it a little more when we start talking about his writings and his works and his philosophy. But I just want to quote from one of his most famous works, The Book of Five Rings. Uh, it's kind of a definitive treatise on sword fighting, but also philosophy. The great philosopher Miyamoto Musashi, he says, quote, When you are even with an opponent, it is essential to keep thinking of stabbing him in the face with the tip of your sword in the intervals between the opponent's sword blows and your own sword blows. When you have the intention of stabbing your opponent in the face, he will try to get both his face and body out of the way. In the midst of battle, as soon as an opponent tries to get out of the way, you have already won. End quote. So yeah, he kind of says keep stabbing your opponent in the face. But to my point, pun not intended, it's also about thinking about stabbing your opponent's face. So the intention that you go into this with matters. There is a term in Japanese. There's a word called kensei. It means a sword saint. If you've seen any anime or read any manga, you've probably encountered this term before, uh, usually around some kind of guy who runs on tree branches and, and slays giant monsters with a, a magic sword. Yeah, someone you would expect in a comic book. Yeah, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, larger than life. Yeah, it, you know, and this is fairly common in, in anime, but... It's less common in real life, and there aren't many people who attained this level of respect from the rest of... Because you are talking about a society where everybody can fight with a sword. So to be the mm -hmm. best, to have ascended to a plane where you were kind of one with your weapon and unbeatable is extremely difficult, at, you know, in when you're talking about 17th century Japan. Yeah, yeah. And... You say, Ben, you said this is a world where everyone fights with a sword. Yes, including the women. The women, especially of noble families, were trained in some basic swordspersonship. Yes, they were expected to be able to 
to fight and whether that was, or at least know how to use the thing, right? A sword or- yeah, for or, basic self-defense. Right. Yeah. And in some cases they would train with the naginata, which is kind of a, mm -hmm. a spear. It's basically a sword on yeah. the end of like a five foot stick, which just seems terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So this is the context in which we've got this term, kensei or sword saint. Yeah. it's it's Who gets this term? It's given to people who are kind of they're considered to be one with the weapon. They're finely tuned machines. Mm, They've yeah. ascended to a new plane of swordsmanship. They're, they waste no movements. They have instinctive reactions on sword fighting. Their form is flawless. It's graceful. It's deadly. And among these kensei, there's one name that stands out among all the others, and that is Miyamoto Musashi. So... Musashi's life is something kind of like out of an old cowboy movie or a samurai movie, which makes sense because I only ever picture him with Toshiro Mifune's face because Toshiro Mifune, the, the famous Japanese actor who had been in, has been in hundreds of films, but he played Musashi on more than one occasion. And that's always kind of, for me, the canonical way I envision Miyamoto Musashi. Mm -hmm. But he is, you know, kind of the archetype of this lone warrior, this lone cowboy, even like a John Wick or somebody who kind of rolls into town, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, and yeah. ends up getting into some trouble or accidentally making somebody mad. And then cut to the end of the movie, the final credits, he's wandering off into the sunset, leaving behind beautiful widows and many dead bodies. That's, you know, High Plains Drifter, Yojimbo, all of that stuff. That's the life of Miyamoto Musashi. So the story's going to start. Let's start in 1596 late 16th century Japan, we are in Harima province, which is kind of near present-day Kobe in the southwest. Oh, like Kobe beef. Yeah, like Kobe beef. That's a good way of thinking of it. But yeah, it's uh, close to Osaka. It's kind of between Osaka and Kyoto. So we're talking like southwest Japan. Southwest of the main island of Japan. Main island, yeah, Honshu. Okay, so we've got a map, yeah. And we zoom in and... And there's a 13-year-old boy. His name is Miyamoto Musashi. He's just kind of beginning his career. And as most people who are starting their adventures, at least if you're talking about Link and the Legend of Zelda, you get the wooden sword as your first weapon. And that is what Musashi is fighting with in his town. He's a he's a just became a teenage boy. He's beating up practice dummies. He's probably having battles against invisible pirates and, mm -hmm. and enemy samurai and stuff in his backyard. He doesn't have a lot of formal fighting training, but his father is a martial artist. His father is a swordsman. And so we have to assume there was probably some, you know, if not formal training, at least some kind yeah. of basic understanding of how the weapon works. One day a samurai comes to town and his name is Arima Kihei. He is kind of a, a wandering adventurer who is good with a sword and wants everybody to know it, wants to hone his power and, you know, build a name for himself. And so he comes to town and he posts a public challenge in the town square. I will duel any idiot from this podunk crappy town. You come here and you fight me and I'll, I'll beat you up and I'll show you how great I am. I'm the greatest swordsman in the area. So young Musashi, and you know, we're going to learn more about him as we go, but young Musashi, he doesn't like this. He reads this sign. Mm -hmm. He's like, all right, you know, I've been fighting these practice dummies. I've been practicing. 
I'm going to show this guy what's up. Yeah. Bring it. Yeah. So in the old days, it was kind of like the goblet of fire, right? You write your name on the thing and you stick it to the board like, uh-huh. okay, I'll fight you. Yeah. So he does that. And so then the next day, there's a knock on the door and it's uh, a messenger who's like, okay, well, Arima Kihei wants, has accepted your challenge and will fight you. Uh-oh. And... Musashi's uncle is there and Musashi's uncle's like what yeah <laughs> what are you, you're gonna do what you're gonna sword fight this wandering samurai swordsman so the uncle is like no my my nephew's not gonna fight my nephew's 13 he's not gonna fight this guy you know he don't worry about it he put his name on the board but like it was he's a joke a he was just messing around yeah oh yeah 13 year this is a thing that 13 year olds do sometimes yeah he doesn't know what he's doing yeah yeah <laughs> so they go back to Kihei and Kihei is like no it's dishonorable. This is Bushido. This is the code of the warrior. I posted a challenge and I was challenged. You accepted the challenge. By a 13-year-old. I don't care if he's 13. It's more embarrassing if I don't respond to this, right? Oof. He says, he, so he, he offers a deal. Okay, come there. Come to the battlefield uh, where we're going to duel. Come to the dueling arena. Usually it was like the center of town or whatever. They'd clear out. Yeah. I think for real, like high planes drifter, like gunfight, you know, on Main Street kind of yeah. thing. This is what they were doing, right? And people would come out and watch this. High noon at the OK Corral, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a public place. Uh, there's definitely going to be an audience. There's probably some buzz surrounding this. Yes. Yes. And Kihei says, OK, well, my honor will be satisfied. I won't kill your little nephew, <laughs> but he's got to come to the duel and he's got to apologize to me. And that will like absolve my honor. He's got to show up and say he's sorry. And then I'll, I won't kill him. So the next day they go to the dueling area and Kihei shows up. He's wearing his best clothes. He's got his best swords. And young 13-year-old Miyamoto Musashi, who who suffers from pretty extreme eczema. So he's picture like he's got like red bumps and stuff on his face. He's kind of a crazy looking kid. And we have pictures. And also, doesn't he describe himself that way in his writing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so this is what we're picturing. Yeah. And then the uncle comes. Mushashi is there with his uncle. And the uncle's like, hey, Kihei, don't worry about it. Like, you know, he's coming here to apologize. And Musashi is like, no, I'm not here to apologize. He takes the wooden sword that he's been practicing with. I'm picturing it as a toy sword, but I don't, it probably wasn't. It was probably like when you see like fencing, like kendo, I imagine it probably was a sword like that. But in my head, it's the wooden sword from The Legend of Zelda. (laughs) But still, it's a wooden sword, so... It's a wooden sword. It's got its limitations. He pulls the wooden sword. He charges Kihei, shouting challenges to him to fight. Kihei, okay, fine, I'm going to do that. He pulls his short sword, the Wagizashi, and Musashi runs up and immediately flips this guy, flips Kihei, blocks his attack, flips him onto the ground, kicks the sword out of Kihei's hand, and then pummels him with the wooden sword and kills him. Oof. That's pretty humiliating for Arima Kihei. Yeah. He got flipped, and then we tried to get up. He got smashed between the eyes with a wooden sword, and he died. Wow, yeah. That's where the legend of Musashi begins. He kills mm-hmm. his first man at 13. And it's not its not just any man. It's a, an experienced swordsman. An experienced wandering swordsman. Yeah. And so from there, that's kind of the beginning of it. Um, by the time he's 16, Musashi has decided... I'm going to go out. I am going to become a Ronin and I'm going to wander and I'm going to have uh, adventures. I'm going to walk the earth. I'm going to give all of my worldly possessions to my sister, except for my wooden sword. Mm-hmm. And I am going to walk the earth as a Ronin. Yeah. And what does it mean for him to be a Ronin? So a Ronin is a drifting freelance kind of warrior. He's maybe got a similar skill set to samurai, good with swords, etc. 
but unlike a samurai, doesn't have a master in the sense of a liege lord. Samurai pledge their loyalty to a daimyo, a local lord. I don't know, like a duke, a count, an earl, that kind of thing. I don't know, a, a lord. Yeah. Yeah. And the name Ronin comes from two words that mean wave, as in a wave of water and person. So it's like a person who's fluid, has the connotation of a drifter. And for a samurai, for an actual samurai, their honor and reputation are tied to their allegiance to their master. A Ronin doesn't have that. So we had been talking a little bit before the show about Knights Errant, which is kind of a similar analog in the West, where you had yeah. kind of these mercenary knights who didn't have a lord, and they would wander the countryside having adventures and looking for a lord in some cases, right? This Arima Kihei guy, if he had, you know, won enough battles and proven a name for himself, maybe a daimyo would have wanted him to come work for him. And yeah, maybe he, that's yeah. what he was looking for. I don't know. Maybe it was a job interview. And how did people kind of become a ronin? There were two main ways. Either you were an actual samurai whose master had died or was dishonored or lost his legal privileges and no longer had the authority to... I guess, claim the liege, the liege loyalty of people. In theory, a samurai was supposed to ritually kill himself when his master died. So you can imagine. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a stigma or prejudice in the eyes of a lot of samurai and the daimyo, the feudal lords, attached to a ronin or a samurai, an ex-samurai, I guess, who outlived your master. Oh, because he didn't have the honor to kill himself. Like he's kind of dishonored in that he's still wandering around. Yeah. But actually, reality is a lot more complicated, as it often is. And in the Edo period, which is actually the period that we're talking about here, uh, you have a combination of two factors. There were a lot of restrictions placed on samurai's job mobility. You used to be able to change masters if your current Lord said it was okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you can leave me and go work for so and so. And it also seems that there were restrictions on ex samurai taking taking on other jobs, other professions. And was this really codified, codified, or was it more sort of the samurai restricting themselves, maybe being reluctant to take a less glamorous job? You know. But you couldn't change masters either, which is interesting because it's like, yeah, that kind of sucks. Because then it's like if you're master's not doing so good, he's kind of on his deathbed. And you're like, ah, I'm going to change before I have to kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> you're not allowed to anymore. Yeah. If your master's kind of on the decline. You know, he's like, wounded in battle and you're, he's like dying out. And you're like, quick, quick. Uh, you, I'm, I'm going to work for you now. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you just kind of like, you know, sneak like check out LinkedIn or whatever, you know, or whatever yeah. the, you know, 17th century equivalent was. Hashtag looking for work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Open to work. <laughs> yeah. But I also want to say that uh, you know, we're kind of joking and talking about job hopping and whatever, but this doesn't really do justice to the experience of being a samurai. You know, there is a pretty serious code of honor. We've referred to it before. It's called Bushido, the way of the warrior. And it was really formalized in this period. And for a lot of these guys, it's more an identity than a day job. Yeah. It's like a, it's their it's their lives, right? It's their, yeah. whole, their whole existence is dedicated to this. Yeah. And another factor is that also in this period, a lot of these daimyo lost their fiefdoms. So you had a lot of unemployed samurai wandering around. So some of these samurai, they become ronin. They go freelance, basically. 
And then some other people become Ronin from the start. That's the other way to do it. You just go your own way from the start. You often sever connections with your family. You make do with the skills that you acquire one way or another. You walk the earth. And that's what our guy Musashi Miyamoto did. Yeah. He, he, he was Samuel L. Jackson from Pulp Fiction or, or, yeah. or David Carradine from Kung Fu, something like that, wandering the yeah. earth, having, yeah. uh, having adventures. And that's kind of what his life reads like after this, right? So he leaves home at 15. He leaves all of his possessions with his sister. And, you know, like I said, he didn't have a lot of formal fighting training, but he wanted to get some real world experience fighting people. So he started doing what Arima Kihei did and traveling hmm. around to different places and challenging people to duels, uh, whether they were lethal or non-lethal, um, depends on uh, how angry they were at being challenged or wanting to fight or spar or whatever. But Musashi starts traveling the world and having adventures and getting into duels and getting into fights and learning from masters when he can or dueling other, you know, other wandering ronin to try to, you know, show who's the greatest warrior in Japan, that kind of thing. So this is kind of when we start getting into this Clint Eastwood, John Wick kind of and then at some point, you know, during the Edo period has been generally pretty peaceful. So that's kind of one interesting thing when you talk about samurai is that like for long periods of the samurai time, most of Japan was at peace. And so you have all of these great warriors who don't have anybody to kill. And that kind of changes once we start breaking into what we're talking about now, the warring states period. I'm guessing that there's hmm, war involved in this period. There's war involved in the Warring States period. As advertised, yeah. Yes. We aren't sure exactly, like, 16th century Japanese armies didn't take, like, the same care in making unit rosters that we have today. So we mm -hmm. don't exactly know what Musashi was up to during these big, you know, like you, you mentioned Kurosawa, but one of these, these big kind of Kurosawa-era battles. Fushimi, Gifu, Sekigahara, which is like the big one, happens in 1600, where, you know, basically the fate of Japan is decided and the Tokugawa shogunate takes over. But you're kind of... Musashi's at fighting age while this is all happening, and there are various stories of him being present at some of these battles. And we don't know for sure about it, but it seems likely that if he is kind of this young up and coming warrior who wants to fight and train his skills. There's opportunity. Yes, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity. There are people that need to be killed with a samurai sword. And uh, you are a guy that excels at killing people with a samurai sword. So would seem really would be really weird if he didn't participate in at least some of these battles <laughs> yeah yeah um and with a metal sword mm -hmm. a metal sword i'm guessing maybe not so much a wooden sword if he's actually in battle there are stories we know for sure he participates in a battle later on okay. and in that battle he's riding a horse and he's got a lance and a sword oh cool yeah. And we assume, like, the, most of the information I've come across suggests that he was on the side of um, Toyotomi Hideyoshi at mm -hmm. the Battle of Sekigahara and the, that campaign. And that is, that's the losing side. 
I assume through no fault of Musashi. Yeah. But they 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 battle on the western side, which would make sense because that's where he's from. Uh, they battle with the west against the east in the uh, the big civil war in in Japan amongst the samurai. And after that war is over, like I said, we don't have a lot of great details what he's up to during the war. But after the war, he kind of goes back to what he was doing. What, like what you said, the the unemployed samurai. The, <laughs> the we fought our war and now it's over and now. The Tokugawa shogunate is here, and unbeknownst to the people at the time, we're gonna have like three to four hundred years of peace in Japan now. <laughs> so, uh, what do you do? He goes back to having adventures and trying to fight people and trying to hone his art and and doing the Ronin thing you were just talking about. But let's stop right there and hear a word from our sponsors. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do find this missing girlfriend and tell her story with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one like my producer Anna oh my god my friend Dr. Mindy Shapiro hi it's Dr. Shapiro and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner and of course Gail's sister Elaine Katz having no closure it kills you join us as we try to solve a 35 year old cold case it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So... We've got this badass fighter, and we can picture a lot of how he moves. And you mentioned earlier, Ben, that you know he has eczema, so his face is kind of red. Let's paint a picture for him. So he had a lot of eczema when he was a child. Uh, so picture like extreme acne, kind of, or like uh, I, we don't know a lot of the details. So kind of like uh, probably congenital, like was born with it. Later in life, it it manifests as scarring, like facial scarring. And so he's pretty considerably scarred. He also, he hated cutting his hair, changing his clothes, and taking baths. Mm -hmm. Because he thought those were all opportunities for someone to catch him off guard and kill him. That is kind of like a, you know, maybe he watched Psycho too many times or something, but like he didn't like <laughs> yeah. to bathe, didn't like to shower, didn't, didn't think that stuff was important anyway. Yeah. And so he's just kind of like, <laughs> kind of, kind of grunge, kind of grungy, yeah. wandering dude. Yeah. And um, our listeners with small children might find this familiar when your toddler says, no, I don't want to take a bath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's what my son does. He's like, I don't want to take a bath, daddy. This is when they sneak up on you and assassinate you in the bathtub. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 I don't want to get assassinated. I saw Maverick. So, you know, he's traveling around. He looks kind of like what, honestly, what you would picture in some of these kind of more traditional anime style things or a Yojimbo or a Toshiro Mufuni movie. He doesn't wear armor. He just kind of wears the traditional clothes of the time. Yeah. Does he say why in any of his writings or? Uh, no, he doesn't really touch on it. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's big and heavy yeah. and it's not yeah. really like, you know, practical to 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 be wearing it around all the time. Plus, like, you know, I don't think it was kind of common for the samurai to wear that stuff around when they weren't on a battlefield. Yeah. And, you know, more even more interesting than the armor is that, like, sometimes he didn't even, he like, he continued using the wooden swords because he liked them. So, yeah. So he's foregoing real swords, which was unusual, counterintuitive. He didn't wear armor and he rarely fought with real swords. And for many samurai, this is unthinkable. The katana, the the longsword, was one of the warrior caste's most prized possessions. Yeah, it's almost the symbol of samurai, right? Exactly. You couldn't wear, you couldn't carry it if you weren't a samurai. It's very central to their bushido, to their identity, to all of this. And Musashi, he's perfectly content to just bludgeon his foes into submission with the katana-shaped hunk of wood that he carved himself from the remains of a tree that was looking at him funny. And for him, it was fine. It worked when he was 13. Yeah. Why not now? But for a for a traditional samurai, this is this is heresy, right? Yeah. Yeah. One other thing he did is, you know, when he was carrying swords or even if he had the, the sword shaped sticks, he fought with both of them at the same time, which 
was very weird for samurai in this time period. Most samurai carried the daisho, which is the two swords, the long sword, the katana, mm-hmm. and then the short sword, the wakizashi. Yeah. There was a third, there was a dagger called a tanto that they would sometimes carry as well. Um, so how did they use these two swords? Well, the, the katana was the main fighting sword. It was longer, it was heavier, and you fought with it using two hands because it made it easier to control. And if you watch any kind of, you know, uh, m- even modern day Japanese fencing, the um, kendo mm-hmm. stuff, the, that's how they hold it. It's two, it's a, a, a wide grip. So one hand up kind of by the guard and one hand down at the bottom. And it gives you much better control because a katana is heavy. It's a big, heavy oh, yeah, sword. Yeah. And it's not yeah. easy to swing that thing around with one hand. Generally, you use two hands for it. Yeah. The wakizashi, the shorter sword, you would use... In a closer area, if you were fighting indoors, you wanted the wakizashi. It was a little easier to maneuver, a little quicker. You could use it with one hand. Also, you would traditionally, like, when your master got sick and died, you killed yourself with the wakizashi, Mm -hmm. generally. So you're carrying around this short sword that you tend not to use in yeah, normal combat? Exactly. I mean, you would huh. use it for different, just different things, right? Different, the the modern equivalent would be like you'd have your assault rifle and your pistol and they're, okay. they're useful yeah. for different yeah. things and you use them for different stuff. Musashi wasn't interested in committing seppuku and severing his own abdominal aorta no. just because his boss was dumb or died. Yeah. And he decided he was going to use both swords. And this is in testament to how strong he is because he's, yeah, he wasn't the first yeah. guy that thought like, oh, why don't we just use them both at the same time? You have to be... And then you lift the katana with one hand and you're like, oh yeah, that's why we use two hands for the katana. Exactly. Because it's heavy. Yeah. And this guy, I mean, he just kind of was able to wield them both together and started fighting like that. And this pissed off a lot of samurai, not just because, you know, they couldn't do it or whatever, but because this is not how it's done. This is not Mm -hmm. Bushido. This is not the way we do things around here. You know, you pledge yourself to a lord and you kill yourself when he dies and you fight with the sword at this grip using this style. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he he annoyed some people with it. Yeah. Who is this upstart? (laughs) Exactly. One of the other interesting things that I came across when I was looking at this stuff was uh, one of the advantages, you know, the advantages of two swords uh, is many, right? Mm -hmm. You can you can block an attack at the same time, which is hugely beneficial. He used to say that you could use the two swords to kind of funnel your enemies in front of you so you didn't get surrounded. Oh, Like if you backed up towards a corner uh, or a wall, you could hold the swords out to either side and kind of try to use it to like funnel your adversaries into an arc in front of you so that they they wouldn't get around you and attack you from the flank or the back. The other thing he was really good at, apparently, was that he could just throw that wakizashi and kill people with it. He could throw his sword. He could throw the short sword with like deadly accuracy like a harpoon. Hmm. So I'll, I'll tell a story about this. Yeah. There was one time that Musashi is challenged by the master of a weapon called the Kusarigama. Kusarigama is a big long chain with a razor sharp sickle on one end. It's kind of like the Grim Reaper's nunchucks. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. Yeah, yeah so so it's a big chain with a, a sickle on the end of it. Picture the bride fighting the Japanese schoolgirl in the first Kill Bill movie. The weapon is similar to that. Instead of it being a ball on the end, it's a it's a hook. Mm-hmm. This guy's swinging it around, and he's got huge reach with it. He's swinging it over his head, swinging it in front of him, doing probably some cool, like, showy, you know, nunchucky kind of stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And Musashi has his two swords, 
I'm reminded of Raiders of the Lost Ark here. Uh-huh. Musashi's just like, okay, fine. And he throws the wakizashi at it and it goes right through this guy's torso. And the guy stops and he looks at it. Zero fuss, zero distraction. Yes. He's just like, yep. we're done. Yeah, it, yep. it doesn't kill him immediately, but it distracts him long enough for Musashi to run yeah. up and cut him in half, right? But one thing that we keep, we'll see, and this, this is kind of the the action movie, you know, twist on this is that like he, the master of the Kusarigama is doing all of this cool stuff, and then Musashi just throws a sword at him, wounds him, runs up and kills him. But it's like you said, these duels take place in public, and he's in this guy's hometown, surrounded by disciples of this guy, and so these other Kusarigama guys are like, well, that was bullshit, man, and so they pull out their weapons and they all attack him. <laughs> And he's got yeah. to kind of fight his way out from these guys. He, I think he wounds and kills a couple and wounds a few more. And then he has to run away because there's like the whole town's trying to kill him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he knows when to call it quits too. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah what he, strategic, he can't, he can't, strategic he can't retreat, kill everybody. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no. And, and so, but he likes doing this kind of stuff. He likes doing battle yeah. against people who have weird weapons and stuff so he takes mm-hmm. on the master of the lance and the staff and you know whatever lots of sword fighters but whatever mm-hmm. weird weapon or weird fighting style you had he wanted he wanted to face you he wanted to try his homemade homebrew two weapon fighting style out against whatever you got yeah and something he says in his writings is basically don't get attached to any one particular fighting style because your opponent could figure it out and kind of you know, figure out the weaknesses and what sort of strategy to use against you. So his interest in fighting all of these users of different weapons is part of his attitude of being fluid. Yes. Bruce Lee, right? Be water. Yeah. Bruce Lee was, Jeet Kune Do was also don't get attached to one style, learn all the different stuff, try whatever you can, see what works to find, like find a style that works for you. A very similar setup, but that was one thing in 1970s Seattle. It's a very different thing yeah. to try to bring that philosophy into 1605 Japan, right? <laughs> Where yeah. things are pretty rigid here and people are annoyed when he comes up yeah. here with his new fighting style. And one of the guys that get particularly upset with him is a, a group of warriors. They are from the Yoshioka clan, the Yoshioka Ryu. The Yoshioka clan was very famous and renowned in the area of Kyoto. Its founder was the sword instructor to the Ashikaga shogunate in the old times. They were the the ruling family of Japan, the shogun's family. Um, So this isn't some chump school or just some random guy Musashi is challenging. Uh, It's uh, one of the more prominent schools in Japan for fighting. Okay, so Yoshioka clan, they have two brothers. The eldest, uh, Seijuru, he's the current master of the school. And he accepts Musashi's challenge, so they pick a day and a time for the duel. It'll be fought with wooden swords, and the winner would be decided by a single blow. Whoever gets hit first wins. Kind of like Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. So how does it go? (laughs) Well, on the chosen day of the event, Sejiro arrives on time. There are members of his clan and his school there, as well as other random people who have come out to see these two famous masters fight. 
these kinds of duels were usually done in public places so that it would be known that they were honorably accepted and that there was no cheating. The results were, you know, verified by the crowd of people. Plus, I think it was just like a really fun show to go see, right? It's kind of like... Oh, yeah, yeah. They didn't have TV, right? You couldn't just turn on UFC. You had to go into the town square and watch two guys fight it, fight it out. Yeah, with all your best friends. Right, exactly. Bring some popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, everyone shows up, including Sujiru, and... They have to wait because Musashi, he doesn't arrive on time. In fact, he's super late. Hmm. <laughs> now, this isn't an accident. And we'll, we're going to see this again as we go through Musashi's story. He has chosen to come late because he knows it pisses off his opponents. And what's like one of the worst things uh, martial artists can be? Pat, do you know? You do not want to be angry. Being angry for a fight is just a bad idea. And... If you're angry, it gets in the way, it clouds your mind, it distracts you, it makes you act rashly, it makes you do stupid things. You know, Lao Tzu, the very famous Chinese philosopher, said, the best fighter is never angry. And I'm guessing pissed off is, you know, we're we're on the train towards being angry. Yeah, he's he's falling to the dark yeah. side. I guess Darth Vader always fought angry, but I guess he also lost. Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe there's something yeah. to Lao Tzu's uh, <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. So the other guy, Seijiro, is angry. He's pissed off. Seijiro is the head of this Yoshioka Ryu. He's the one of the top swordsmen in Japan. Like this guy is not used mm -hmm. to being disrespected, especially not publicly in front of all of his people, his clan, all of these things like this is mm -hmm. extremely disrespectful. And and that's one of the things that I personally kind of like about Musashi. He's a very disrespectful guy and he likes to win <laughs> in the most disrespectful yep. way possible, as we have seen and will well, continue to see. <laughs> yeah. And here it seems like it's strategic or at least tactical disrespect. Well, yes, exactly. Tactical disrespect. I, I like that. I want that to be the name of my band. <laughs> There you go. Okay, so Musashi arrives uh, and he shows up with his wooden sword. He picture like the the Bokutu or the whatever the swords are they fight when they do kendo, mm -hmm. and the two of them face off. They there's a little movement. They size each other up, and crack. In a single move, Musashi hits Sejiro's shoulder, knocking him off his feet and breaking his arm with one blow. Duel over. Musashi's won. <laughs> Oh, bam, just like that. Yeah, you stand around for three hours and get your arm broken with one swing, and that's it. Game over. Or, yeah. <laughs> it would have sucked to have, like, paid admission for that. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of, like, the early Mike Tyson fights. <laughs> yeah, and you know those spectators, the townspeople, they have side bets going on. Oh, know? I'm sure somebody made some money on Musashi breaking that guy's oh, arm yeah. in one swing. Oh, yeah. I think most people in the crowd lost money on this one. Yeah. And so, you know, the, he's the, the elder brother, he's the patriarch of the Yoshioka clan, and he loses and he's beaten and he's so humiliated by this entire thing that he decides he's going to step down as master of the school. He's going to die of shame because he just lost so easily and was so dishonored and got so angry yeah. and he literally quits and becomes a monk. Yeah, well, that's something to do, you know. <laughs> he loses the match, he loses face. Okay, go Go lead the contemplative life. <laughs> yeah. Think about what you've done forever. So he's the, or he was, the head of the school. So does this mean that his younger brother steps into his role as head of the school now and takes over? It does. So the younger brother's name is Denzichiro. He's the younger Yoshioka brother. What do you think his primary objective is upon assuming command of the Yoshioka clan? 
I'm guessing it's not organizing a family picnic. It is. I'm guessing it's something like, <laughs> like avenging his brother's honors, reclaiming face for the Yoshioka clan, something like that. Yeah, if there's something that like is kind of a central tenet to samurai philosophy, it's like avenging honor of your family. <laughs> and yeah. Musashi was extremely disrespectful to them, and now he has to uh, now he has to avenge his brother. So Dizichiro. He takes over and he issues a challenge to Musashi. Except this time, forget the wooden swords. This is a duel to the death. Ooh, yeah. very high stakes. Very high stakes. And um, uh, and Musashi agrees because Musashi loves a challenge and he hates people challenging him. Okay, so he's going to duel the younger brother. He's going to duel Denzichiro, the new master of the Oshioka clan, to the death. Um, they agree on a date and a time again. Again, it's going to be in a public place with plenty of witnesses so that everyone knows mm -hmm. the duel was fair. And, and again, do you want to guess what happened again? also again? Are we going to have a replay of Tactical Disrespect? Tactical Disrespect Part 2. Uh, Musashi shows up late and um, in the process totally pisses off Dean Zishiro, who is is not Zen and hasn't learned from the mistakes of his older brother and is extremely oh, mad at this lack of respect. Uh, yeah. They, they I mean they are literally like the sword trainers to the shoguns, so this is really bad publicity for their school, if not just like personal dishonor, which is very important at this time amongst the samurais. Oh yeah, very much a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what do you think Pat? Do you think this guy's going to control his emotions and uh and and feel the light side flowing through him and let go of his his hate and his anger? Well, if I were his teacher or mentor or whatever, I would hope that he does learn by reflecting on his brother's experience. Given the tone of your voice, Ben, I'm guessing that maybe he does not fully reflect and learn from history. No. So Let the he... hate flow through you, yes. The hate flows through him. Oh, dear. The hate flows through him. He's okay. mad. He's super pissed when Musashi finally yeah. like saunters in in his bathrobe a couple hours late. He doesn't have the calm mind that he needs, so when they stand across for their duel, one's calm and one is like red with rage. Okay. So Denzichiro, you know, this is a, a, a martial arts school and they train all different types of weapons. Denzichiro is a, a master of a very strange weapon. It is a big iron rod with steel rings on it. Huh. Okay. Like a war club with rings. Okay. It's a weapon yeah. made for, for killing your opponents by bludgeoning them to death with this thing. Uh, it cracks skulls, break bones. It's not subtle and elegant. It is not a subtle, elegant weapon. It is a big, literal bludgeon. It's a war club. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he's probably thinking he's going to repay Musashi for breaking his brother's arm by, by breaking Musashi's face. So Musashi, on the other hand, he shows up with... To his duel to the death, Musashi brings his wooden sword, probably the same one he used to disrespect Denzichiro's older brother, because <laughs> that's just how Musashi works. <laughs> so from Musashi's point of view, I'm, I'm wondering, okay, how is this wooden sword going to hold up against an iron rod with steel rings that's made for cracking skulls? Yeah, and exactly. Like, what's yeah. it going to do to a wooden sword? Yeah. I don't know. But also, like, it's extremely... If, if it wasn't already disrespectful that he's there two hours late, now he's there with a freaking wooden sword for a duel to the uh -huh. death, which we've seen Musashi has killed... Is he taking this seriously? He's not taking this seriously. But also, we have seen Musashi kill people with wooden swords before. So it mm. is a deadly weapon in this guy's hands, but it is also 
just humiliating. It's tactical disrespect yet again, which is kind of Musashi's yeah. MO. So Apparently, yeah. Yeah. So the crowd's there. They all mm-hmm. are surrounding this fighting circle. The 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 master of the martial arts, the master of the Yoshioka clan, Denzichiro Yoshioka, he's there with his iron rod with the rings on it. Musashi's across from him with his wooden sword. There's a cheer. They size each other up. They take some feints and some steps. And then, bang. Musashi's strike is the first and only strike of the duel. His wooden sword hits Denzichiro directly in the forehead, killing him instantly. Whoa. <laughs> so deadly Whoa. weapon in his hands, I told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy could probably impale you with a plastic spork if he set his mind to it. Yeah, really. And it's like John Wick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Yoshioka brother number two is now deceased. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about him. It's also about the Yoshioka clan and their school. They must be an utter mess right now. They must be in utter dismay. They've lost not just one of their masters, but then the next guy who replaced him in just a short amount of time. And they've both lost the same unruly, disrespectful agent of chaos who is Musashi. He's a ronin, so he doesn't have organizational backing. He doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the gravitas that comes with being a member of a clan like the Yoshioka clan. And he single-handedly basically demolished their reputation. With two swings, two swings of a wooden sword. Yeah. He completely yeah. humiliated the entire school and clan and by extension like the Ashikaga shogunate, right? Yeah. And um yeah. and they're all like, there. Domino 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 domino. Yeah, and all of those people are there. He's in their town. They didn't like he doesn't have a home mm-hmm. to go to or anything. Like he's in their hometown. He's at their school disrespecting their leadership in front of like their clan and stuff. And so Yeah. And so now like these guys are are a wreck. The senior brother, Sejiro, he's off being a monk. You can't come back from that. And Denzichiro is dead. So now leadership of the clan passes to Sejiro's oldest son, who is 12 years old at the time. His name is Matashichiro. He's the, uh, you know, the elder brother's oldest son. He's by, like, you know, right of inheritance. The school is his now. And we were just talking about death and dishonor and family loyalty and the school and all of this. And Musashi's got to die. They, these guys have got to get him. He can't yeah. walk away from yeah. treating this school like this, right? Wandering Ronin, challenging people to duels is not, you know, inherently disrespectful in Japan in this time period, but completely humiliating them in the way that he has. Yeah. They yeah. cannot allow this to, to go unpunished. So what are they going to do? The 12 year old's not going to duel Musashi. This guy just beat up this kid's dad and killed his uncle. So um, what are they going to do here? Well, are they all going to... Is there strength in numbers? And is the Yoshioka clan going to... I don't know, come after him as a group? Perhaps there is strength in numbers. Perhaps rather than selecting a day and time and then letting Musashi <laughs> saunter up whenever he wants and hit you with a sword, and when that's not working, how about we go find this guy and kick his ass and pummel him to death and avenge our family? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what they decide they're going to do. They're going to jump him. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to get into that whole story on Thursday this week. 
we're going to do two episodes um, in the same week. This is going to be a two-parter, uh, and when we get into it on Thursday, uh, we will get into what happens when the Yoshioka clan attempts to ambush Miyamoto Musashi, and we'll talk about the rest of his story as well. So please stay tuned to that, um, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. Please try to um, like and subscribe to us and leave us some good reviews and stuff. Uh, tell your friends. It really, really helps the show out if we can get um, some of you to generate some interest for us through word of mouth and through your own personal charisma so that would really be awesome for us uh pat thanks so much for talking with me about this and i will talk to you a little more on thursday okay yeah see you thursday badasses badass of the week is an iheart radio podcast produced by high five content executive producers are andrew jacobs me pat larish and my co-host ben thompson Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fibbs. Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.